would, and let's go to a familiar passage of Scripture. I would believe most of us here today, that's Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And just by a little way of introduction, the last two Sunday mornings have been uh, part of a, a series, and and uh, so is the next several weeks. So I, I just want to uh, encourage you, if you uh, at all possible, be here. Now, we understand our friends from Hammond will be at their church where they belong. Amen. Uh, as they get back. But uh, those that are here for local, we just encourage you, I, I would, to, to get the full impact of each sermon. You really need the ones that go before it. And two weeks ago, we were actually in Romans chapter 10, and, and we dealt with what the Bible says about how a person is saved. I mean, it is not just uh, uh, a, a religious experience. The, the way the Bible explains it is being born again. Now, one of the great privileges of going to Oklahoma for the men's meeting, I got to spend about 40 minutes holding little Chloe. And, uh, of course, she was trying to talk to Grandpa and all of that. She's not even a month old, so she really wasn't. But, I mean, she's just moving her mouth and all those wonderful things. And and I uh, got to tickle Pete, little Peter and play with them just for a few minutes. And and uh, and uh, then uh, we just sang Wonderful Grace of Jesus at the men's meeting. 1,600 men sang that song at the meeting. I'll tell you what, they about blew the roof off the place, didn't they, Brother Brett? I mean, it was just, uh, and Brother Dave, those guys that went, went with us, and Brother Doug, I, I'll tell you what, I think I can speak for them. Uh, men, next year, uh, we need to take more guys. We just really do, and want to encourage you with that. But I'll tell you what, uh, just being in one place where there were 1,600 men, and the theme of the meeting was gentle men. And there wasn't any weeping. The guys didn't hug each other. That's ladies' meetings. Uh, that's what we used to joke about promise keepers. They have all these guys show up in the stadium. They'd all cry and hug each other. That's not a men's meeting teaching you how to be a man. That's a ladies' meeting. Uh, and uh, yet, men need to be gentle, amen? And, uh, but it's got to be God's way. And last week... We were in Romans chapter 8, and we were talking about primarily prayer. You know, if you're going to have a relationship with God, it's got to be about prayer. And, and I believe, I don't know that I've ever said it this way before, but through preparing that sermon, I, I believe that prayer is the tool that God uses to conform us to the image of His Son. Prayer is, we have, we do everything backwards. You see, most religion teaches that you gotta do something and do enough of whatever that something is. Now they all argue about the somethings and every different religion has a different something, but they want you to do something in order that someday you might attain salvation. The Bible says that salvation is a gift that all the work for salvation was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. You turn in Christian radio, pick up any book that talks about prayer written in the last 20 years, and it all talks about how your prayers enable God to do something. That is 
100% opposed to the Scripture. God does not need your prayers. God wants us to pray so that He can change us. Because God is good. He already knows what He wants to do. But He's not going to bless you. He's not going to do something positive in your life if you're living against Him. And prayer changes that. How many of you have experienced that? You pray about something and God doesn't answer and you keep praying and you keep praying and all of a sudden you realize, you know, Lord, there's some things wrong in my life. See, that's how God conforms you to the image of His Son. And I want you to think, when you think about that, think about Jesus in the garden. You see, that's what it was all about. And those are some deep thoughts. You're not going to get it in five minutes. You're not going to, if you want a copy of the sermon, we'll, we'll get you one, all right? So you can listen to it again, but we've got to keep moving. Because the Christian life isn't just about getting saved. It's not just about praying. God has a purpose and a plan. And the Apostle Paul is writing the Romans here in 12, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. And I just want to ask you a raise of hands. How many of you have these verses memorized? Uh, just lift your hand up so I can see it. How many of you have Romans chapters 12, 1 and 2 memorized? Oh boy, I thought I'd see more hands than that. That's only about a third, uh, less than half of us for sure. I, I want to challenge every Christian needs to memorize these verses. You, you need to think on them on a regular basis. These, these verses, uh, if you ever feel that things are not going right spiritually in your life, this is one of God's checkups, spiritual checkup spots. You just plug yourself in and go through the analysis that is in these verses here And chances are, you're going to find out what's wrong with you spiritually. I mean, that's why God puts these things here. And and this morning, uh, I'm hoping to to get through all of verses 1 and 2. If I don't, we'll just pick up tonight. Amen. Uh, uh, There was so much that I would like to do. I could preach 20 sermons out of this passage, uh, but I don't want to do it this morning. Amen. And so, let's just go through, if you can quote these verses, quote them, if you, but read while you're quoting. It, it, it reinforces, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, if you like a title to the message this morning, it comes from the First two words, I beseech. The word beseech means to seek after, search for, try to get. Definition number two, to beg earnestly for, entreat concerning a thing. Definition three, to supplicate, entreat, implore 
concerning a person. That definition is from the Oxford English Dictionary. In modern English, we would just simply say, I beg. Now, who's writing here? The Apostle Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, is putting these words down. Of course, he wrote in the Greek language, but if you translate it into English, you get, I beseech. I beg you. That's the title of this morning's message. I beg you. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where another person came to you. Now, in New York, you don't have to go very far before you meet a beggar. You've probably already seen quite a few on the subways. And, and boy, I'll tell you, some of the stories are so good. In fact, well, we don't have time to tell beggar stories this morning. Because that's not the kind of begging that was done here. This is not Paul just saying, listen, I really, really want you to do this, please. You know, that is that doesn't work. How many of you have ever had your parents say, please, come on, just, just once, will you please? Did you do it? No. Human nature's got something built in. By the way, ladies, if you really want your husband to do something, don't take that approach. It doesn't work. That kind of begging is man's imitation of what's going on here in this passage. You see, real pleading and real earnest imploring, what we would call begging, has to be based on something. There's got to be a reason, there's got to be something that makes this plea urgent. Uh, And sometimes we we take an entirely different tact on this and and we we have this idea of begging here. Paul's saying, I'm beseeching you, I'm earnestly imploring, but... Uh, as a parent, and I hope you won't uh, judge me the wrong kind of parent, but there are times when I implore my children, when I beseech my children for certain activity. And I have a basis upon which I beseech them. If you don't, I will. I mean, there's a basis there. there there's an understanding that they get. That if they don't do what I'm asking them to do, there's going to be big problems. Now, Paul's basis is this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. What's that next phrase there? By the mercies. By the mercies of God. Paul says, I am giving you a definitive, definite command, plea. I am asking you with all of my being. I am begging you with every bit of my soul. But that that plea is based upon... The mercies of God. Now, we have this idea of the mercies of God as God going, 
it's okay. I, I understand. In fact, people call him the old man upstairs. I hope you never do that in front of me. Somebody does that. Uh, uh, that's not the God of the Bible. I'm going to correct you. Because God is not a doting old gentleman sitting in a rocking chair. That was Eli, if you want to know who that was. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God that parted the Red Sea is watching us. And he sent Paul to beg us based upon his mercies. Now, if you want to understand the mercies of God, what you really need to do is start in Romans chapter 1 and go the whole way up until we get to chapter 12. Now, that's what I meant by 20 sermons out of this verse. Uh, we actually did that once. And uh, I did not check my calendar, but it took us uh, nearly two years to get to chapter 16. So by the time we got to chapter 12, I'm guessing it was about 12, 14 months and uh, I'd like to go home for lunch, and I think you would too. So we're going to work on that this morning. But the mercies of God are defined specifically in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 as Paul is giving his heart's desire that his people, Israel, would be saved, would believe in the God of Israel. Jesus Christ is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the Savior of the New Testament. He fulfilled each and every law, all 613 of them. And you think you're going to get somewhere by keeping the Ten Commandments. Not going to happen, friend. Jesus kept them all. You see... In chapter 11, Paul gives the example of the olive tree being the, the root of God's blessing and salvation. And how that he took that tree and the natural branches that were dead through unbelief, he broke them off and cut them, but he left a little piece there so that he could graft in new branches from the wild olive tree, from an olive tree that wasn't cultured and had no history, talking about a living illustration of how God has chosen to save the Gentiles. As I look out over our our congregation this morning, we are predominantly a, a Gentile group. We have some people of Jewish heritage here, and we praise the Lord for that. But... We are the wild branches that was grafted in. That God would give us the salvation of the Jews without making us become a Jew. I mean, in the Old Testament, if you were alive and you wanted to worship God, the story of Ruth is how she left her people, her family, her name, her heritage, every defining part about her to become a Jew. And it wasn't a pleasant journey, by the way. The book of Ruth is only four chapters long, but it months and months of very difficult manual labor by Ruth. Out in the fields, working day after day, because if she didn't get enough gleanings to feed them during the winter, they would starve. 
How many of you have ever tried to make a bag of flour out of whole wheat? Just try it sometime. Go to the grocery store and get one of them little sacks of whole wheat and get your mom's rolling pin with permission and try to make flour out of the wheat. You would say, where in the world would I get a five-pound bag of, of flour and you only make one or two loaves of bread out of a five-pound bag and you're going to have to eat for a year? Now, just think of all that labor that was involved. God, in His mercy, says all you have to do is believe. That's why these words are up here. That Jesus finished it all. And we can be partakers of the salvation of God. Now, Paul is addressing this to believers. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Do you know that God's mercy is a far stronger foundation than anything that you and I could possibly do? Paul is not just saying, please, 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 it'll be good for you if you would do this. He says, the God of heaven left heaven's glory and lived here on earth and went through all the suffering of the cross and resurrected it to tomb so you could have this opportunity. I am imploring you, don't ignore what God has in this book. That's what Paul, he's not speaking from an attitude of cowering fear, but of God-given authority, the entire history of the world is wrapped around God's mercy for us. And by the way, how do you get mercy? Remember? Mercy is given to the defeated by the victor. That's how you get mercy. How many of you remember that day that you surrendered? That you admitted defeat? And the mercies of the God of heaven were applied to your life and you got saved. That's why it's called being born again because it's so different. It's so incredible that no, no other definition. It is a brand new life in Christ. And many people have dealt, as a pastor, dealt with many people over the years and they'll say, well, pastor, I'm just not sure about my salvation and and where I always try to go is here. Just had the privilege, maybe tonight, if you want, I'll show you the picture, holding little Chloe. You know what? Nobody has, a, has any doubts as to whether little Chloe was born or not. You know why? Because she's just so cute. And she just sits there and she just wiggles her little head and... She grabbed a hold of Grandpa's finger, and of course, that always gets my heart when they do that. I just love that. The neat thing about grandkids, though, is you can give them back. Amen? And, uh, but I don't mind all that diaper changing and stuff. I, 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 it doesn't bother me. But she was very good. Didn't have to do a thing. Why do we doubt whether we're saved or not? 
Well, part of the reason is is because we're trying to pretend life is somewhere it isn't. And the other part is because we've allowed sin into our lives and it perverts that life and it doesn't feel real. And Paul says, listen, I am begging you based upon the mercies of God. You see, God wants His mercy to change your life. But it won't happen until you're defeated, until you surrender, until you reach the end of you, until you're willing to sign that treaty that says unconditional surrender. And when you do, then God's mercy becomes real. The greatest living example that I can give you of mercy is the nation of Japan in 1945. They were defeated. They signed a treaty that says, We surrender. We will no longer hold arms against the United States. And we sent General Douglas MacArthur over there, and he became the head of Japan. You know what he said? He said, send me a thousand missionaries. You know what we sent? A thousand engineers. A thousand bankers. And Japan has become the, uh, the greatest economic power in the Far East uh, uh, until just recently. There is no challengers. As China is emerging, it begins to challenge. But Japan has been the great leader. And why? Because they took what we gave them. And in many ways, Japan has exceeded uh, our business acumen and, all, and, and our financial abilities and and have done far more with far less than we have. It's, it's an incredible story. But that's a living illustration of mercy. Well, how different would it have been? Brother Uichi wouldn't have had to come to the United States and struggle all that time to get saved if we'd sent a thousand missionaries instead of a thousand engineers. You know that? But God's mercy is still there, my friend. And it extends to anyone who will receive it. And Paul says, I am beseeching you based upon the mercies of God. Now, here's what I'm asking you to do. This is what Paul is begging us to do. He was talking specifically to the believers at the church in Rome. And as he was speaking to them, he said that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, the wording there, this idea of a living sacrifice, is, is quite foreign to us in our modern understanding of things. But I, I want to challenge you. We have so, so many examples of this. We do this so many different ways. And yet, when it comes to God, it is an incredible mystery. Uh, number one, let's just start out with your bodies. Guess what? We're, we're talking about the body that belongs to the person of record. I, I don't like to sound like a lawyer, but sometimes you just got to get exact here. 
Uh, you cannot help someone else present their body a living sacrifice. Husband, you can't help your wife. Wife, you cannot help your husband. Uh, I don't care how desperately he needs it. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, I, I don't care how much change you want in those children of yours. You cannot present them. It must happen in your heart between you and God. The living sacrifice part. A sacrifice, read your Old Testament, was an offering that was given to God. Now, those offerings, what was the first thing they did? They would slice the juggler vein and catch the blood in a bowl. That blood then, if it were a normal sacrifice, would be poured out about the base of the altar. The animal would then be cut up and washed in water and certain parts would be burned on the altar and other part would go to the priest and other parts would do this. Uh, could I, could I challenge you that after an animal was offered in sacrifice to God, there was nothing left. It was completely consumed. Each part had its place, but the the lamb, if we want to use that example, as it came to be sacrificed, the lamb didn't go, okay, Mr. Priest, do it quick. Let's get this over with. Lambs don't talk. They didn't have any judgment. The lamb didn't say, uh, you know, uh, the right shoulder tastes better than the left one, so give the right shoulder to the priest. Uh, uh, there was no control of the sacrifice over being sacrificed. It was there. It was consumed. There was nothing left. That's a dead sacrifice. Well, how do we get to a living sacrifice? Well, let's take the principle. Nothing left. No right of determination. You don't get to tell the person, uh, God, to whom you're offering your body, what he can do with any part of it. It all belongs to him. In fact, when you got saved, that's what happened when you got saved, wasn't it? Didn't you surrender everything to him? Well, this idea of a living sacrifice is the continuation of that same Understanding of life, only God wants you to stay alive. Paul put it this way, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which now I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see... You take your heart everywhere you go, don't you? You ever left your heart behind? I know they wrote that stupid song in the 70s. I left my heart in San Francisco, but if you did, that's not all you'd have left in San Francisco. Amen? I mean, the simple truth is, you take your heart everywhere you go. You say, I love you with all of my heart. True love Forever. And then underneath it scratched out Anne and rewritten over top Jane, right? 
And then if you go back a few years later, that's scratched out and somebody else's name put in there. And then they give up. Okay, here's what I want you to think about. Do you take your heart everywhere you go or does it take you? Ah. You see, there's the issue, isn't it? There's the truth. You ever do something really dumb? I mean, so dumb that it qualifies for stupid with a capital D, you know, all the way, big letters all the way across. Anybody else ever done that? And you look in the mirror or you don't even have enough grace to look in the mirror. How in the world could I be so dumb? How in... Where... I don't even like this. Why did I do it? Um... Your heart took you somewhere. See, there's a whole lot of difference between looking in the box at the cheesecake and looking in the empty box at the crumbs. Amen? Because you're going to be feeling other things about that. None of it's going to be good. You see, our heart does things. Our heart determines so much about us. They've done some real research on this, and I I read about this several years ago. And when they used to do heart transplants, they would take the whole heart and transplant an entire human heart from one body to a matched donor from another body. Uh, My understanding is today they do not take the whole heart. That there's a little section in the very back of your heart that is hardwired to your brain. Uh, Paul Harvey, the commentator, did some stories on this about 20 years ago uh, about people who had received a donor heart and all of a sudden begin to develop new hobbies and new likes that they had never had any inkling to before. One guy started playing golf with his new heart. And, and he felt kind of weird. He said, man, I just got this desire to play golf. I want to go out and play and I can't stop. I, I don't know where this is coming from. And he did a little research and he found out that the, the fellow who had died, whose heart was now beating in his chest, was an avid golfer. You see, they found out there's a part of your heart that is hardwired to your brain. And when they cut that part out of your old heart and leave it there, and cut that part out of the new heart and discard it, and literally piece that donor heart together with the piece of your old heart, that it beats more regular, and that the healing goes a lot faster, and that your body doesn't have anywhere near the complications that it did before they started doing that. Do you think God just might be telling us something in the Scripture that we weren't smart enough to figure out until just a few years ago? Uh, That's what I believe. You see, when we present our bodies a living sacrifice, you've got to start with the inside. You can learn to love anything. 
Have you ever watched a couple walking down the street? And you go, how in the world did he marry that? (laughs) We've all said that, haven't we? We've all thought that. Uh, Let me tell you how that works. You spend time together. You bond. You see, God wants to spend time with you. Daily Bible reading schedule. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because some people will lie. And I don't want to unnecessarily embarrass you. But if you want your heart to be connected to God, then maybe you need to spend a little time right here. I promise you, there's a way to get your heart in tune with His. It's right here. But pastor, do you know how hard it is to read the Bible? Yes, I do. I promise you the first 50 times are the hardest. But but I don't even read through the Bible all the way in one year. Well, maybe you ought to get that fixed, amen? If you want to be connected to God, you've got to let Him talk to you. This is how He does it. A living sacrifice. It says, holy I love that song my wife wrote. God is still holy. He hasn't changed. He hasn't lowered his standards. But how in the world are you going to find out what is holy and what isn't holy? I'll tell you, there's only one way. Listen to me preach. No. That'll help. But that's not the way. This is the way. Because God will tell you. And see, holy all by itself is not good enough. You know, some people are very holy because they want other people to look at them and say, Wow, you're you're spiritual. You know what? That's holy, unacceptable. It says, holy, acceptable. I mean... I'll I'll tell you, and I'm sure Brother Dave can attest to this, uh, they tell us that there are literally tons of incredible, excellent, gourmet food, the best that you could ever want, thrown away in this city every day. I just want to say I thank God that I've never been hungry enough to go looking for it. How about you? You see, that's what a holy, unacceptable life is. And I know that they, quote-unquote, reclaim this food. It's not the same as a park bench, my friend. I don't mind sitting on a reclaimed park bench or writing or printing on reclaimed paper, but I don't want to eat reclaimed food. I'll take a lesser quality, uh, even a lesser quantity, 
that was done right the first time. How, about, how many agree with me on that sentiment? Why would we treat God any different? Why would we say, God, this is the best I can do, won't you like this? Or, Lord, these are the desires that I was born with. You know, that's what it says in that purpose-driven life book that God puts these desires in you, no? Adam put those desires in you when he ate of the fruit. And they have to be fought against and they have to be overcome. And that's why it says a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your extreme service. No, which is your reasonable service. Many of you know my testimony. When I was 16 years old, I had only one desire in my life. And that was to be able to put on the uniform of a United States Marine. That, that, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, I had to make a choice. Was I going to do what I wanted to do? Or what God wanted to do? My favorite little rejoinder. I hope you don't mind hearing it again. But both the Marine Corps uh, and I benefited from the choice I made to go to Bible college instead of the Marine Corps. Uh, and I like to think that I'm Marine Corps material, but uh, I, I, somehow I don't think I'd ever made the cut. And if I did, I'd never become a preacher, I promise you that. Because you see, the United States Marine Corps demands a few things. Uh, the DI usually tells you, Listen, you think you know how to eat and you know how to sleep and you know how to make your bed and you know how to cut your hair? He says, you don't know nothing. When we're done with you, you're going to eat the Marine Corps way, breathe the Marine Corps way, and if you don't, we're going to bust you up so bad that you're going to wish you had. I mean, that's the way they make those men into Marines. I mean, have you ever heard the story of Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier in World War II? He went and signed up tried to sign up for the Marines, and they took one look at his diminutive size and said, listen, we, we, we tried to make men out of boys, but uh, you don't have enough stuff for us to even begin with. And, and they sent him out, and he eventually became the most decorated serviceman in World War II. Amazing story. But let me tell you something. It is your reasonable service if you're going to be a member of the United States military to surrender your schedule, your life, your name, those men that walk the honor guard at the Tomb of the Unknowns in Arlington Cemetery before they are accepted into, those, into that unit and prepared and trained to march on that duty, they have to make promises that their life even after they retire from the Corps, will never be any different than it was when they were marching on guard duty at Arlington Cemetery. And if they won't make that pledge, they won't allow them to march the guard. If it's good enough for the Marine Corps, why can't we serve God with that kind of effort? How about these professional sports players? Do they auction their souls to the team owners? I'll tell you, they do. Why do you think they use all these uh, human growth hormone and steroids and 
all of that stuff because, listen, nobody wants to go watch a ball game when the pitch is 50 miles an hour and the guy strikes out. I mean, come on. Uh, we want to see, we want to see excellence on the field. And if you gotta get drugged up to do it, people do it. Don't they? It's, it's a scary thing. Why would somebody do that? All the great football players, with very few exceptions when I was a teenager, almost all of them are dead because of drugs that they took to make them what they were when they played football. You know, I used to really like football until I found out about that. You know, there's no game in the world worth that kind of stuff. Being an old man when you're 40 years old. Then I read a story about the little ballerinas and all the things they do. They're old and broken before they're 30. Because of what you have to do to your body to stand on your toes. It ruins your anatomy. I'll tell you what, they give everything they have to do what they do. The rock and roll guys, the good ones, have PhDs. They understand what they're doing. They've sold their soul, not to the devil. Most of that's a bunch of shtick, just a bunch of made-up lies. And if you're stupid enough to believe it, I'm sorry. What they want is what's in your wallet. And if they got to put face on and kill, uh, paint on their face and kill rats on the stage, they'll do it. They'll do anything to worship that God. Do you think Bill Gates got where he was by half sacrifice? No, Bill Gates' favorite sacrifice is the competition, by the way. Uh, destroying and taking other companies out so that his company could be advanced. I'm not saying that that's necessarily evil. It's part of the corporate game. But I'm not playing the corporate game. I want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Why can't I be as dedicated to Jesus as the rest of the world is to their things? Why is it unreasonable to give everything I am to the Lord Jesus Christ and not unreasonable to give everything to the Marine Corps, to the... uh, Yankees, uh, or to some other sports team. Let me tell you something. It is our reasonable service to present our body a living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what He has done for us, His mercies. Far outweigh anything I can give Him. But then there comes the next part of this. And this is where we have the most problems. And be not conformed to this world. Every once in a while I'll get a phone call or some kind of letter or contact and I'll say, my name is so-and-so, I am a student at such-and-such a university and I have great musical talents. And we're just looking for some place to exercise my musical talents on Sunday. And we would be privileged to play in your church. Delete, trash, whatever. However it gets here, that's where it goes. And it's so hard for people who have ability who have talent, who have developed something 
in the world before they got saved. It's so hard for them to get saved. And after they get saved, it's so hard for them to serve. Because they can take their natural ability and do something far beyond anything I could do. Studying and trying and sweating. I mean, to them it's no effort at all. It just comes off incredible. But let me tell you something. It's not a God. Because it's conformed to this world. You see, you can't take what you got in the world and offer it to God and God accept it. That's unacceptable. When you get saved, you've got to start over again. That's why it's called being born again. You know what? Little babies have no talents. They have no abilities. There, there is nothing that a little baby can do for themselves. When they're first born, they can't even cry. But they usually get the hang of it a couple of days later, now don't they? Especially 2 o'clock in the morning. They can wake you up out of a dead sleep. Why? Because that little tummy says, I need something yummy. And you've got to go feed them and take care of them and change the diaper. Or maybe there's something nasty in the diaper. And they're going to wake you up and let you know about it. Uh, that's what little babies do. But when you're 45, you ought not be doing that. There, there ought to be some growth. Amen? But that growth comes not from my talents, not from things I learned in the world. If any man, therefore, if any man be in Christ, what's it say? He is a new creature. It says the old things are passed away. It is so hard to lay down those old things. But I want to challenge you Unless you're willing to lay them down, you'll never be holy. You'll never be acceptable. You've got to be renewed. Now, it's interesting where it says here, but be, uh, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, they have these uh, stories where people have had Incredible life changes where they were one time addicted to all these things and now they're living clean and right lives. And every one of them will tell you, well, I had to change the way I think about things. The Bible says you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But how am I going to get my mind renewed? I've got to fill it with this book. My thought press process has, start, has got to be biblical. It's that I can prove. Now, believe it or not, I actually taught trigonometry one year. I praise God it was only one year. But I did teach, and my students did learn some things. And I made sure that they did every proof in the textbook. You know why? Because... In trigonometry, it's not coming up with the right answer. The, the, the clue, the, the key to trigonometry, advanced mathematics, is knowing how you got there. That is what the proof is all about. You see, anybody can get lucky and pick the right answer once in a while. But knowing how to get the right answer will change your life. 
It will help you understand how to live. And God wants you to be able to prove things. Being in the ministry now, uh, let's see. Well, actually, this may be 29 years. I don't look that old now, do I? Peter said, you're too young to be a grandpa, but you are anyway. That's my son. And uh, no, I'm not too old. If I were too old, I, I mean, too young, I wouldn't be one. So I, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not too young. Uh, but the simple truth of the matter is, I've seen enough of life and I've read enough of this book that I can prove to you that ordering your life according to this book is the only real life choice you have. How many say amen to that? Uh, I've been married to the right woman the only time I've ever been married. Amen? For... I'm going to mess it up. Almost 27 years. You know what? I can prove to you that she made the right choice. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what. I am so thankful that she made that choice. But I can prove to you that we made the right choice together based on what's in this book. I loved... I heard a preacher preaching the other day, and he said, I'd rather do five funerals in one wedding. I said, man, I don't know about that. I don't know what kind of weddings you've done. I love weddings. When they're godly. When the people are prepared. When they put their... I love doing weddings. I enjoy... I want people to have... The little, I, I want them to have what I have. And you know how I got what I got? You see, I started out in verse 1. And I said, okay, God, it's not going to be my choice. It's going to be your choice. You know, he made me wait longer than I thought I should wait. And, and he picked somebody that I wouldn't have had enough sense to even think about asking. And he did everything so much better. And, and I'm one of those guys that they ask that question about, how in the world did you marry her? I mean, I'm the filthy heathen that broke up the Marshall family. And uh, unless you know who the Marshall family is, that means nothing to you. But the simple truth of the matter is, I can prove to you that God's will is good. You see, God accepts our service. That's why we have a church here today. And God's will is perfect. I can tell you the best things in my life are because of my obedience to God's Word. I'll tell you, when we started per the purchase of this building, some of you were around when we started that. And it was a, it was a terrifying thing because... Our, our church was mostly baby Christians back then, and they were all just going, Oh, Pastor, this is God's will. And I'm going, You have no idea what we're trying to do here. I mean, there was no support. And then I looked to some of the older preachers 
And they were going, you have no idea what you're trying to do here. This is insane. And, but I can prove to you that we made the right decision because God paid for the building in seven years. All $763,204 worth. You see, God does miracles. But you can't prove that it was God's will until after He does it. Do you get that? That means you surrender your heart today. And you don't be conformed to this world. You know, there are a lot of things that we could do. And I want to finish here as quickly as I can. We had a lot of opportunities to be conformed to this world. If I wanted to be a quote-unquote Christian businessman, I could make a lot of money doing it. Well, actually, the right person could make a lot of money doing it. I'm not the right person. I don't want to be a businessman. I want to be a preacher. And God did the miracles to allow me to be the preacher. And He's done miracles in the lives of people here to move them from where they are were to where they are. And you see, Paul is begging us as individuals. He's not getting down on his knees and saying, pretty, pretty, please. He's saying, listen, you need to understand the mercies of God. If you understood how great God's mercy was, you would run in this direction. You, you would surrender to the authority of God. And that you would present your body a living sacrifice, holy, completely designated to God, acceptable to Him by His standards, not by your standards. It would be reasonable for you to give every ounce of life energy that you have to do what He has printed in His words. But you're not going to learn anything from the world. You've got to be changed. There is nothing the world can teach you in service for Christ. I play the saxophone. Not very much anymore, but when I was learning, I had a Jewish saxophone teacher. It was amazing, Mr. Weinberg. And I said, Mr. Weinberg, I don't know if you understand this or not, but I don't want to sound like Kenny G. Uh, I, I don't want to play jazz. I don't want to even sound like a jazz player. I, I want to play music that will be acceptable to God in my church and not sound like it came from the world. He said, that's easy. I said, really? I said, I don't know anybody that's doing it. He said, just, he said, I'll teach you the basic principles of how to play. He says, you practice and you pray and you do your thing. He said, and God will give you your own unique sound and it'll come out the way that he wants it to. Now, this guy's not saved, doesn't believe anything about the Bible. He wasn't even practicing Jewishness. Uh, he, he was out there serving. He wanted, he wanted me to pay for lessons and I did. 
But it was amazing that a man who had no understanding of the Scriptures at all, never even touched the New Testament, could come so close to what the Bible says. You know what that tells me? It's not near as complicated as you make it. Why do we like complicated things? Because it gives us an excuse for failure. That's why. There's nothing complicated about getting rid of your old life. About taking your abilities and your talents and everything that you are. And by the way, all you're doing when you do this is you're continuing what God did the day you got saved. You're just applying it to other parts of your life. Amen? Do you think this would have a positive impact on how you pray? You see, the messages are connected. And we've got some more. And I want you to take these next few moments and look at your heart. Where is your heart taking you? Is it that life of living sacrifice? Or do you have things that you have on the agenda? Is it God's ability to do what God wants? Or are you taking abilities and things that you learned before you were saved and trying to use them to serve God? You see, that's not acceptable. Are you allowing sinful things in your life that's not holy? How many of you would lift your hand with me and say, my mind could use some renewing? I mean, my hand goes up. I, I want my mind to be renewed. It's, it needs that constantly. That's what these verses are talking about here. This is the Christian life. It's not yours until you get saved. But once you get saved, you grow in Christ doing exactly the same thing that you did when you got saved. I've heard people say, I wish I could just get saved over and over again. No! Grow! Well, how do you grow? By doing the same thing that you did when you got saved. As a little babe in Christ, you couldn't surrender anything but yourself. Now you've got to go through the process of learning to surrender every fiber of your being. That's what a living sacrifice is. And that's only going to happen when you're renewed in your mind and your mind begins to control your heart. And then your heart starts making your body do things that you don't even think about. But they're connected to this book. That's the mercy of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, this is a time we call the time of invitation. Lord, I can't imagine there being one person in this auditorium that doesn't need to do something in response to the words in these verses that we looked at today. And Lord, we ask that we would have the ability to see past ourselves in our own wicked hearts. Lord, I pray for those that are sitting here this morning and are struggling with their salvation, that they'd be willing to get their things straightened out.
that they'd be willing just to surrender everything to Jesus and let Him be their Lord and save them. Lord, I pray for those that are unholy today. That You would convict them and help them to understand these things need to be not cleaned up and straightened out, but brought to the very throne of the Holy God and set down at His feet, confessed to God. I pray for those that are holy yet unacceptable, that, Lord, You would break down those bars of resistance in their soul, that they would understand and begin that process of being renewed in their mind. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling with life, just trying to keep doing what is right, that they would understand that the time involved is part of the proof process. And when it's done, it'll be good. It'll be acceptable. It'll be perfect because it's the will of God. Lord, we ask You to work in our hearts that we may be that living sacrifice. We can't do it for anyone else but ourselves. I pray that today we'd be willing to put on those blinders that would keep us focused upon Your Word, not upon ourselves, that You may do Your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, Brother Franz. Come lead us in the hymn. I surrender all. If you need to come and pray, let's just step out and let's seek the Lord. Let's ask Him to do His work in our hearts and in our lives today. As we sing, will you come?